in the winter, you know, you have those moments where you're like, you know, I don't know if I can swear, but what the f- am I doing? Why did I decide to do this? You know, mm-hmm. like, why didn't I just go get a job as a designer? You know, I went to school for graphic design. I could have worked for one of the snowboard companies or stuff that I was into doing stuff that I liked. But I guess that wasn't for me. Hi, I'm Matt McKean, and welcome to Cherry Bomb the Podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking in the studio with internationally known artist Marcus Sebastiano. For those of you who are unfamiliar with his work, I'll link to his webpage in the show notes at theartofmattmckee.com. Marcus, I appreciate you coming in. I know there's Thanks, a lot Matt. to look at in here. You got a great radio voice. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to look at in here. I'm looking around while I talk. It's, it's interesting. This is what my wife calls the inside of my head. You got a lot going on in your head. <laughs> uh, all the time. It's crazy. So you described yourself to me as a Boston-based mixed-media artist who specializes in exclusive large-scale art installations in restaurants, hotels, commercial spaces, and homes. From looking at your body of work, I get the feeling, though, that you've actually solved for that fine balance between creating art for art's sake and also for creating art for others as a more commercial endeavor. Sure. How did you get started down this path? Man, this is a it's a good question and probably a long one, but I'll, I'll try to make it short <laughs> as possible. I started really taking more of a fine art, contemporary art approach about 10 years ago. And I started building with this certain style, this mixed media layering style. I put that out there in the world. I did a few shows. A couple of people started following my work and that led to one of my first commercial pieces was in the Gallows restaurant in the South End. Mm-hmm. which interestingly enough, that piece just got stolen last month off oh the wall, <laughs> commissioned probably seven or eight years ago. And the restaurant had closed and they were in the process of removing the piece from the outside and someone stole it. So oh interesting. God. That kind of started my career, I guess, in the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry where you know, I was making these specific pieces for public and kind of interior spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, the more people that kind of caught on to the style of my work led to new restaurant owners or hotel owners to calling me to do more work for them. That's awesome. Yeah. Mostly word of mouth then or were you actually really only ever word of mouth. And then I did a couple big shows with my friend Louis. You know, you're talking about the intersection of food and art. He started an event called Create and they matched uh, bartenders, chefs and visual artists together. And it was a huge event averaging like 800 people per event. We used wow. to do it at the design center. We did it in the North end and you kind of just do a pop-up of all your work. You know, you'd make a station with the food, the drink and the art and it would be all cohesive. Like as if you're going like in an around the world type thing. Oh, wow. Um, man, I got so many leads from those things and I still kind of connect the dots going back now and go like, you know, where did that come from? <laughs> oh, a lot to my buddy, Louis uh, DiBacari. He kind of started that and opened me up to this whole other industry and group of people that I, I wouldn't have been exposed to. Wow. wasn't for that. But you would also talk that your work has been collected now. It's in Dubai. It's all across yeah. the country. Mostly Boston, New York, uh, Miami, all over California, mostly major cities in between. But I got a couple international collectors, London, Dubai, Greece. There's a couple places out there in the world. Yeah. It's, <laughs> nice. it's cool to say that they're, you know, landed in those different places. Yeah. Either when somebody comes to you to commission a piece or you decide you wanted to do something for yourself in the studio, how do you go about starting? One of the things that was always fascinating to me looking at your work is that it's very abstract, but at the same time, there's also some very concrete feelings that come through it. Sure. 
it's a multi-level process. There's a lot of layers that goes into it, you know, so it, it depends on what type of application I'm thinking about doing. But I mean, most of my inspiration comes from whether it's like a figure, a portrait, a model shot that I've seen somewhere, or um, texture from the street, like graffiti, or just a peeling wall, uh, weathered metal. You know, I'll take pictures with my phone often, like, oh, I love how the pink peels off of that green chair. I'll kind of keep that in my little archive. And when I go back for inspiration, I'll, I'll say, all right, maybe I should start with this color palette. If I'm doing a commission, maybe it's something specific, like a cityscape or, you know, a dock or a bridge or something, you know, and I'll kind of bring that inspiration, the color and the texture into the piece that way. A lot of it starts on Photoshop, mostly, mm. where I kind of create, you know, the subject matter and the textures. And then I build a, a outside of that, physically, I build a canvas, um, usually on aluminum. And then I layer vintage paper, paint, textures, sometimes metal, perforated metal. And I build all those textures up. I photograph that, bring that into Photoshop, combine that with the other concept I was already working on. It starts physically and digitally separately, then mm -hmm. kind of gets merged together digitally, output it to physical, and then hand painted in again. So it's really like four layers. It's kind of <laughs> hard to explain without looking at it. Yeah. You kind of have to see it even in person just because photos don't do the depth justice is what people have said to me. I, bought, you know, I was certainly wondering that yeah, as I was looking. I should have brought a piece with me. Oh. I probably would have been smart, but um, um, you'll see one someday. Definitely. If you're at all interested in this unique form, go check out his website. It's amazing. What is your definition of art? Let's start there. That's a great question. I've been in quite a few debates on this too. I'm kind of from the school of thought that if like it's any type of expression, personal expression, even physical good craftsmen, I think it's all art. I think it's all expression. I think if someone else can look at what someone made and see beauty in it or see depth or see a uniqueness, I mean, I guess from the in the art world, there's a very big difference of what's considered fine art, commercial art, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And that comes with the school of thought that you need to get a master's in art to know how to make a piece of art where most of the people that I know that went to school for art don't make a living as an artist or even work in the art field. But I think there's something to be said about someone making a hammer and someone seeing beauty in that, you know, and like attention to detail as a craftsman and someone just painting a portrait. I think they're in the same category and I consider them both art. And I know that classical opinions on this been in debates about whether something's fine art and people would say, you know, my work isn't technically fine art it's commercial art or technically you, you know I, yeah. I call it mixed media which is kind of a broad category but this is a very duchampian question actually yeah i think about it i don't really have a true opinion on it I, I really don't i consider myself an artist and a craftsman and someone that just likes to make beautiful things i like to make things beautiful for myself and i also appreciate other people appreciating what i make that's how i've made a living is not just creating what i love but creating something that other people co-designed with me or something. If I go do a commission, maybe I wouldn't do something specific naturally that mm -hmm. they would want me to do. So then it's like kind of meeting in the middle. Okay. And I guess I'm more of an entrepreneur in some senses, even before I am an artist. That was another subject I wanted to go into was that you went from, I don't know the exact order, but you are an artist mm -hmm. and you've been creating these murals, but at the same time you created an art space out in... Lawrence, it was in Lawrence, yeah. uh, called Black House. Yep, yeah, yeah. 
from what I was reading about it, it almost felt like it was an incubator for young artists or emerging artists, I guess. It became that only because it was a really large space and it was difficult to afford the rent when we <laughs> jumped in there almost nine years ago. Oh, wow. I had started taking artwork really seriously, like, um, you know, trying to become a professional and sell art to make a living. I knew I needed a bigger space because I always wanted to go big. So I found this old mill building in Lawrence, 250 Canal Street. And I walked into this space and man, like I was in love. It was like, mm. you know, you always have these visions of your life. And sometimes when you like physically step into it in reality, you're like, man, this was what I always saw in my vision, yeah. in my dream, you know, and I never knew that that could have been real, you know? So I got this giant space. I knew it was going to be a lot more than I could afford. So I just said yes. And I took it. I figured out how to get other artists to rent smaller spaces within that. So furniture makers, fashion designers, artists, photographers, painters, wow. you name it. Over the course of the seven years, we probably had 30 different people renting spots for one month, one year, you know, just kind of in and out. And then that led to building a gallery within those walls, a finished gallery that kind of became a collective. We started showing artists from all over New England and having these big shows and bringing a lot of people to Lawrence. And that's kind of what put our name on the map. Leveled up again, and now we're in Newburyport. Was where I opened the new blockhouse building. Was sold in Lawrence, and kind of the writing was on the wall. I wasn't going to be able to do the business I wanted to do there, which was like have a liquor license, sell alcohol, have a store front where people could walk in and buy things off the wall. So that's what we have now in Newburyport. Wow! In your little blurb you sent to me, you said I may be naive in thinking that every person has a purpose, but I'm starting to really double down on this. When I think about all the people in my life, they all have a gift, a trade, a skill, something that is unique to them and something of value, but not only to themselves, but to others. Life is a battle of self. It's you versus the you of yesterday. That last line, what do you mean by that? I probably plagiarized that from like Matthew McConaughey or something. <laughs> I've heard a few people speak to that. It really resonated with me because in whatever industry you're in, you're going to have competition. You're going to have people that do the same thing as you, maybe, you know, at different levels of the career. It can make you anxious looking around and seeing what someone else is doing, mm -hmm. if they're going bigger or they're doing something that you wish you were doing. Of course, in the age of Instagram and Facebook and all this, it's like everyone's showing their best selves. For me, it actually pushes me to be better. So mm -hmm. I look at those things, but you know, when I feel anxious about it, like, oh, I'm not where I'm supposed to be in my career or I've been in one of the bigger shows in Art Basel or something, I just kind of look back and go, well, you went from this to this, to this, to this, and you're only in the race with yourself. We all are like going back to what I said about being blessed with certain gifts. You know, I can only look at the world through my lens and do as best a job that I can. Mm -hmm. We all do something different is what I'm yeah. saying. Like maybe if I just was okay with focusing on being an artist myself, I would maybe already be further down the line and technically as a selling artist, maybe a, selling more pieces or more expensive or being more collected, whatever it is. But that's not like what I feel like I'm here for. I'm doing something a little bit different where it's like I get just as much enjoyment selling someone else's art that I do selling my own. So your concept for yourself is evolving, would you say, in terms of yeah. you, know, you started out learning the craft of art and the art of art, yeah, and then now it's that connection that's happening with your audience. Yeah, it's a few different things. Like when I'm too much in the sphere of making art, I want to be more back out connected and doing different things and 
you know, when I'm too busy doing all the other things, I want to go back into the studio and make art. So it's like kind of like they <laughs> inspire each other. And, you know, I'm often inspired by what other people do too. I mean, we're all just looking at things and stealing color palettes and ideas. And we're all just feeding off of each other and putting mm -hmm. things back in the pot, you know? One of the things that you had mentioned when we were talking on the phone earlier was that you were working to put together some of your work as NFTs. Yeah. I really kind of wanted to explore that. I know I've looked at it. Sure. But got intimidated very quickly. Yeah. To the process. <laughs> How was that process for you? And is it something that is worth pursuing? Yeah. So it's such a funny thing. NFTs, man. Uh, maybe we should start by defining what that is. Yeah. So these non-fungible tokens is what an NFT is. It's a digital asset that people can collect and trade and, and resell and share. I can only speak mostly to the art aspect mm -hmm. of it. I know a lot of people are into sports cards and, you know, selling experiences and, and everything now is NFTs. Like buy a concert ticket as an NFT and you get all these certain downloads with it, or, you know, maybe you get to meet the artist. There's all types of things floating around oh, wow. now within this concept, you know, it's supposed to revolutionize the world in this kind of like digital sphere people are living in. So um, they're using the the Bitcoin concepts to sell these unique experiences. Yeah. Well. There's a lot of complexities to it. I, I kind of jumped into this three month crash course <laughs> during the pandemic being, you know, in the house most of the time. And I was on the, the clubhouse app and a lot of these rooms that I joined were all about art. And then from that, people started mentioning these NFTs. I had another group of friends, mostly West Coast, that started selling them. And I kind of became part of this collective group, you know, just on a iMessage and on email and, and uh, in chats. And I kind of learned a lot from them. Okay. Started asking a lot of questions. And I was in these chat rooms learning about NFTs and figuring out, you know, I had only bought a little bit of Ethereum as cryptocurrency before that. I didn't know that like NFTs are only sold on the Ethereum network at that time. So uh -huh. you had to have Ether as a currency to pay a gas fee to upload your NFTs. And when people bought them, they also paid a fee to buy your work. It was all based in Ethereum. And then now a lot more platforms you can sell NFTs on. Yeah, so I had some success. I sold probably a dozen on a few different platforms. OpenSea, there's another one, uh, Known Origin, I got accepted to, Foundation. Some of them you have to get accepted to, others like OpenSea. It's pretty much like the eBay of NFTs. You could just learn how to upload your image. It gives you address and everything. You have a crypto wallet. You can store it, sell it, and put it out there in the world. And in terms of the success of these kinds of endeavors is one of the things that I noticed early on when Etsy first came along. Sure. Friends of mine got involved in Etsy and were selling some artwork on there. And a lot of the fine artists ended up kind of backing out of it because it came down to, I shouldn't say the fine artists, it, that a lot of people I talked to got out of it because it came down to how well you market yourself. At the sure. end of the day, it didn't really matter what platform you were playing with, Great whether point. it was Etsy or if it was selling at art shows or art fairs or things like that. It really came down to, do you have an audience? Have you built an audience? Can you build an audience and bring them to the marketplace? It's a really good point. I've seen a few examples of people being successful selling art in the real world, crossing over into the NFT world and being even like a hundred times that more mm. successful. People 60 something million for his. Yeah. I mean, but you know, people that just hear that number or whatever, don't realize that that guy's been making a piece of art every day for the last however many years, 12 years. I, I forget the number, how many years. And that's yeah. what that one art piece was, was, you know, a little clip of every single one of his pieces of art. <laughs> yeah. 
what I love about it is that it does allow the artists, especially digital artists, to monetize. Like before, people wouldn't buy a digital piece of art, like something that you would be so beautiful and put you know hundreds of hours into it that you're going to just view on a screen mm-hmm. because it's not a physical piece of art. Yeah, you know, it wasn't appreciated as much, and now people are viewing NFTs on screens, portrait style and landscape, and now they're making new canvases, digital canvases, and people are collecting art in their homes and selling it, showcasing NFTs. It's a whole new ball game now. It's it's very different. But how does that work in terms of, say, I bought a piece of your work, yep, as an NFT, yep. Can I then print it and display it on my wall? Or? No, the artist always retains the rights for print. The NFT is basically to show like a certificate of authenticity that you actually own that digital image because everyone's like, well, so you can still screenshot it and I can put it on my TV too. You're like, but you don't own it. Like what makes a, a baseball card, you know, worth what a baseball card is when you just hold mm-hmm. it in your hand and like put it in a little glass case. Okay. This is just like a different way to look at that. You know, okay. it's a digital piece you know it's made of pixels or whatever but it's still you own the one of one or the series the one of ten and you can upsell that i mean one of my good friends in california ali sabet he's made about 1.3 million dollars in eight months selling jpegs i mean you're literally selling jpegs wow wow it's pretty wild and then the other thing that it does to protect the artist is like let's say i sell a physical piece of art here in the real world a lot of the times i don't even know where that ends up yeah if it gets resold I don't get a percentage, which yeah. I've had people call and have me assess and they've resold my work to someone else. I don't get a percentage of that. Here, it's connected to the blockchain. If you upsell it, you automatically get 10% or 15% of that transaction. Oh so you God. see a lot of people in the market that are hot. Someone buys it at a certain price, upsells it. You know, Sometimes I saw one today, upsold it for like seven ETH, which is like close to $30,000. Oh my God. And they got $7,000. <laughs> Oh, now I like this. <laughs> yeah, because like it's always tracking you back w- where it came from when it's minted on blockchain. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, it seems like somebody buys a piece of art and part of it is being able to show off in your living room. Hey, I've got a Matisse and hanging in my sure. living room. It's a print, but whatever. Yeah. Can they put it into like one of those digital? Yeah, that's what they're frames? doing. You can show it off digitally. This is what I was saying by the digital canvas, yeah. So now that's creating a whole other market where it's like, how can I display my NFTs? And people are getting a kick out of just having them in their wallet on their phone. You get like this digital asset wallet with mm. your crypto wallet. So you could basically slide through it and just say, hey, I own these images. I own these these Which NFTs. puts in mind right back to when we were trading baseball cards. Yeah, when like I, was what's, in my I youth. mean, if it's on your phone, you're holding it like this, like the size of a card already, yeah. if not bigger, just because it's pixels and not physically printed item. And I've, I've got a McKee over here and I'm going to trade it to a Sebastiano. Yeah. I mean, now they're trading digital cards anyway. All these, you know, athletes are getting NFTs of their of themselves. So if there was a young or emerging artist or just any artist wants to get into doing these kinds of things, where is a good place to start going on Clubhouse or? There's a bunch of different resources. There's an NFTtips.com that my friends run that's really helpful. Okay. Those guys are always on Clubhouse too and Twitter. Honestly, Twitter is like, I never even used that before. And I got heavy using that probably seven or eight months ago because that's where all the NFT sales are happening. And a lot of it comes down to people watch the collectors. The okay. collectors are kind of dictating the market. As so if, if per you find the out, traditional like, method. If some random crypto collector who you don't know who the person is, you know, blue 27 Ivy <laughs> is like, <laughs> 
all of a sudden he starts buying up someone's work these other collectors kind of get anxious about it and they're like well what, what does he know that i don't know and they'll oh, wow. go over and buy a piece that's kind of what happened to me i had a nice little run where kind of these different collectors were, were getting in on it and that's how i ended up selling a bunch of my stuff very cool i've got to do some research then i got to do some more homework on that to wrap that up i i do believe that you know, right now, kind of NFTs is, is the craze, and 99% of the things people are buying are crap. I don't think they're going to have any value in the future. I think it's just because it's a new thing. Everyone's trying to like dictate how the market goes, and also people have billions of dollars in cryptocurrency to spend. Mm. So a lot of these whales, they call them, that have just unlimited Ethereum, Bitcoin, you know, multi multi millionaires, some of them billionaires, they're just kind of having fun. They're just they're buying things to buy it. They're kind of dictating where the market goes. But I do, however, see maybe even when the bubble kind of bursts or deflates a little, I see it more being how you sell an artist. I sell original artwork. I sell reproductions on canvas of my originals. And I also sell like a lower price point, like a print, an unsigned print, or yeah. sometimes limited edition. They're all at different price points. I see NFTs just being within that sales kit, you know, just like, you know, an original is 10,000, a print is 4,000 and the NFT of that is 1,500, whatever it is. Okay. Just so someone can still have that and buy the digital asset from you, but not this like conflated, crazy, it's going to be worth $20 million type of ideology. But if they, they can't put up one of your giant prints, yeah. they can put this up in a digital canvas. They can buy one of the and, NFTs, yeah and, yeah, and show it on their TV. What do you wish you knew when you started? <laughs> started life or started? <laughs> I think outside of art, I started living more of an, an entrepreneur style life mm -hmm. when I was about 20 years old. I started my first apparel company with a friend from high school, oh, wow. which at the time was just kind of a really big hustle. We made denim jeans in Pakistan. We had a crazy line of sweatshirts, t-shirts, accessories, everything. And that kind of set me down this path of creating my own reality in a sense, mm. knowing that I kind of wanted to live in my own space and rely on myself to make a living and I wanted to live an authentic life outside of like, I guess the system okay. is an easier way to say that. I don't know. I kind of wanted to figure it out on my own basically. Yeah. I don't know if that was like the stubbornness. <laughs> I wanted to own what I did for a living. Yeah. And that took a lot of tries. As took opposed a to working for a yeah. big corporation. Or and I always had jobs, you know, I was fortunate enough. My dad owned a sheet metal company. So I grew up working in that place since I was probably 12 off and on. So if I really did need money, I could go with him and minimum wage till I was older. But I learned how to weld at a young age. I got my master's license, sheet metals license. Mm. You know, I learned to build from my grandfather. And, you know, I was always into like exploring and trying new mediums and different things, but they were always a creative outlet. Not what I would like to have known, but just reiterated that like, you're going to figure it out. Like the me now talking to that kid, I would have wanted to hear like, you got it. You're going to be all right you know, in the darkest moments, you know, like I was telling you earlier, like sleeping in a warehouse and, you know, watching mice run by and being freezing next to a little space heater in the winter, you know, you have those moments where you're like, you know, I don't know if I can swear, but what the f am I doing? Why did I decide to do this? You know, mm -hmm. like, why didn't I just go get a job as a designer? You know, I went to school for graphic design. I could have worked for one of the snowboard companies or stuff that I was into doing stuff that I liked, but I guess that wasn't for me. I could have done that, but but now, not to take us down a tangent, but now you are working with Burton Snowboard. Yeah, it's all the things that I said that I hoped for. I'm checking those off the list mm. as time moves forward. <laughs> yeah, we do an awesome program with Burton called Chill with 
young kids, they teach them how to skateboard and then they design and make all their own skateboard decks at the end of the program, which is really cool. Oh, a very wow. small program. We do, you know, anywhere from five to 15 kids at a time. Oh, wow. So we've been doing that for four or five years with them now. And you also mentioned to me the Mutt Society. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like between forming a community of artists with Blockhouse yep. and that's giving back to the artists community. Chill, obviously, is giving back to the snowboard community, sure. which is something that I think you feel very strongly about. Yeah, yeah. Well, what is the Mutt Society? The Mutt Society is one of my really good friends, Trent Sanders. He owns another creative agency called 36 Creative. They're out of Salem, New Hampshire. He kind of created this thing based on uh, his love for biking. They're really into downhill mountain biking, which Oof. is like one of the biggest, fastest growing sports in the world. I've seen the videos of yeah, that it's, and it's wild. It's pretty wild. These guys are nuts. Yeah. And uh, they're fearless. And uh, he's just overall a super generous person. And he started kind of creating this little fundraiser style company and also putting his own money in and donating bicycles to kids in need. And then that kind of grew into giving bicycles to kids specifically that are into downhill mountain biking. And this led to, you know, several trips to Puerto Rico. They were rebuilding their whole mountain bike park after it got destroyed mm. with the hurricanes and all that. El Salvador, Cuba. We went to Romania about two years ago, <laughs> about 10 of us. We brought five brand new bikes to this little town in Romania where these kids like were riding these junk bikes and just like, you know, Transylvania, like all the, oh all the things you ever thought about Romania. Like we've kind of explored those, like the black forests. Oh, wow. They took me mountain biking too. And we, we got a little roughed up me and a couple of the other guys <laughs> that don't do it often. So yeah, you know, it's just, he's always been about giving back kind of empowering kids. I mean, bicycle is the first form of transportation. Freedom, you know? yeah. If you think back, yeah. Transportation, freedom. Exactly. When you're a kid, when was that first moment? It was like, I can ride my bike. Oh, how far can I go? You yeah. Know? I remember calling my father saying, I'm, yeah. I'm on a payphone. I'm not sure exactly where I am. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he realized that. And I guess a lot of us all had bicycles growing up and you don't realize a lot of kids don't. That's wonderful. Yeah. I got one question left. That'd be good. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, this is always my favorite question. Obviously, between my Sweet Blast series and my girth, food is very important to me. Sure. At the end of the day, you get done painting, installing, or whatever you're working on, or sure. printing out and then painting on top of that. What is your comfort food? There's a couple of different ways to look at this. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this before because we were talking about food. You know, I'm always like, trying to look at food as fuel and not as like a comfort thing. Cause okay. it's, you know, just something that I kind of battle with, but I love food. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, if I was going to pick, honestly, it would be my mom's chicken cutlets. She's got these like amazing chicken cutlet. If it's in the winter, I would say it's something like that. Sunday dinner, meatballs, chicken, dad's garlic bread type mm. of thing. If it's nice out, like in the summer, it would be more of like a lobster roll, something local lobster roll, French fries, that type of thing. And if it's just like an everyday, I don't know. It's funny because I didn't eat pizza for so long. And now like, I was never like, I want pizza right now. But <laughs> for the last year or so, I'm like, man, I really crave good pizza. <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess that could be, that's a comfort food, right? Absolutely. Like pizza, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That would probably be more to that. Or maybe buffalo chicken tenders. That's always that works good too. too. That works too. What's next for you? I think it is going to be to build up this new retail gallery that we have in Newburyport right in downtown. And it's probably eight different artists showcasing right now from New England and beyond. I'm starting to bring in some work from Columbia. My good friend Philippe 
a street artist that goes back and forth from here to Columbia. So we're selling a bunch of exclusive prints from the street artists over there and half the money goes back to them. Oh, wow. So I want to do more stuff like that. We also have like live music and art series with the first one coming up Friday where we bring in a notable band or a DJ or whatever and kind of mix that with an art signing or, you know, showcasing one of the artists. Bringing people together. That's one of the things I really like to do is bringing, you know, like minds and not so like minds together in a room and seeing people conversate, connect and, you know, network. I just really enjoy that. So I look forward to building that brand up. Wonderful. Yeah. I wish you the best with that. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Awesome. This episode of Cherry Bomb, the podcast, is sponsored by Guacamole, a part of my Sweet Glass series of limited edition photos. I created the series with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability, and now you can start this conversation in your living room or your dining room. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired for me. Browse and purchase images at theartofmattmckee.com. Please share this episode to your Facebook, Twitter, and all your social media so your friends can listen and join in the conversation. Thanks for listening to Cherry Bomb the Podcast. I'm your host, Matt McKee. Today's guest is Marcus Sebastiano. You can get links to his amazing work and all his social media, plus other notes about this episode at theartofmattmckee.com, and click on Cherry Bomb the Podcast. I'm also on Twitter for questions and comments, at McKee Photo. This episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast could not have been done without the help of Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts, the specialist in coaching for creatives, and editing by the superb Bill Shamlian at Orb Sound. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation.